0: Good morning. It's good to see you again. My name's Matt, and uh, uh, I'm so thankful for to be able to actually jump into the Lord's Prayer a little bit. Uh, Dave, as David said, uh, we're learning to live in a new kingdom, a new culture, and I have some experience with that. Some of you have, I've talked to and I've met uh, you know that I've lived in the Czech Republic for 10 years with my family as missionaries, and this is our first year back in America. So it's a, it's a wonderful thing. But one of the things I had to learn uh, is the role that language and culture actually uh, play in, in expressing and appreciating and understanding how to communicate and how to express the values of a certain culture. When you enter that culture, it's, it's actually odd and different, and you begin to rub up against another expression, another value. So I want to tell you about my first language learning experience. Ten years ago, when we moved, we began uh, the process of trying to find language help to actually engage in this new culture. And I met a friend, his name was Yurka, and he uh, uh, was a language tutor, and he said, well, you can come... And come to my house and I'll teach you Czech. So Yerko was a single guy. He didn't speak a lot of English, which made for some awkward conversation, especially at the first first go of it. Uh, but three to four days during the week for an hour a day, I would go to Yerko's house. And this is how it would go. I would go to find his house. I'd go up to the front door, knock on his door, and there'd be a scuffle as I wait for him to come and answer the door. He'd open the door and he'd say, Hello, Matt. And I would say, Hi Yurka, how are you? And he'd say, Come in. <laughs> so I like, okay. And so I would go in and he'd say, Coffee? Yes, absolutely, one hundred percent, always. Okay, get the coffee. Go upstairs. We'd walk upstairs to his little office, and he'd have he had a room there, just cement walls, wood floor, a table next to the window, and in either side of the table were two chairs and a monitor. And we would sit across from each other, and he would begin to speak to me in simple, check li- like sentences and type them out. And as I'm like trying to track, and that was my language learning lesson. And it continued. Well, about two weeks in, I came to the door like normal, knocked on the door, scuffle on the inside. Yurka's coming. He comes and opens the door. Hi, Matt. Hi, Yurka, how are you? And he says, No. I was kind of taken back. I was like, oh, no. Did I offend him? Like, is he mad? Did he have a bad day? What did I say? He says, come in. So I went in. Coffee? Yes, coffee. We got the coffee. I follow him upstairs, still thinking, I must have crossed some kind of boundary here. I don't know why he's upset. He shows me to the the table, to my seat. I sit down. He goes on the other side. Sits down, looks me in the eye, and he says, Now, Yaksimash, which means, How are you? And at that moment, what I was learning that Yerka was teaching me was how do I engage in this new culture with this new language? How do I express the value that I was expressing in an American way? and us in America, you've probably said, how are you, probably a hundred times this morning already, right? Hi, how are you? Hi, how are you? Hi, how are you? It's kind of like we, as in, in, in our culture, how are you and hi, it's kind of like we just want to make sure everybody's okay. Like that's our expression. Are you okay? Are you okay? Yes, we're all okay. That's part of our hello. But in that culture, in that context, that question was spoken to someone who you know, and it involves An intimate space, like a coffee shop or a park bench, where you can actually listen to the reply, how are you? And you want to hear an answer, right? But here I come, hi, Yerka, how are you? Cultural change. And Yerka was teaching me and showing me. So as we've been playing and living in and learning from the Sermon on the Mount, I feel like we're feeling some of that cultural engagement, right? Chapter 5, things like Jesus says, blessed are the poor. And we say, what? No, you can't be. That can't be right. That sounds too weird for my culture. Or pray for those who persecute you. Whoa. Pray for those that are persecuting me? Love your enemy. Whoa. From my culture, I'm feeling the tension. I'm not understanding. It's the kingdom of God that Jesus is bringing us into. And he needs to teach us how to live in this new culture. And then he's going to teach us how to speak the language of that culture. But what is the kingdom of God? What is he talking about when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God? In chapter 4, just before Jesus began, well, when be- Jesus begins his ministry, his public ministry, he starts preaching. The first thing that he says, this is chapter 4, verse 17, he says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. Or the kingdom of God is near. In other ch- parts of the scriptures, it says the kingdom of God is, a- is among you. So Jesus, as he's beginning to talk about this new culture, the kingdom of God, he's saying it's not this heavenly thing out there. The kingdom of God is right here, right now, and Jesus was ushering it in. Basically, the kingdom of God, he says, is the reign and the rule of God, that we can actually enter into the reign and rule of God like we cross over the state line. Or we move into a different country and cross the border. We can actually enter in and orient ourselves to the reign and rule of God. And what is that main expression of the kingdom of God? Well, Jesus says it's the great commandment. And some of you know what the great commandment is, right? It's love the Lord, you can say it, your God, with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. This is the essence, the core value of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying, we need to orient ourselves. And so, like my teacher friend, Yurka, Jesus, this morning, is going to say, stop. Let me help you adapt to this new culture called the kingdom of God. And at the end of our time, will land in the language, which is the Lord's Prayer. And what I think we're going to see, what I think Jesus is going to show us, that is that we need to adapt and live in the kingdom culture. And in order to do that, we need to shift our perspective on God. And he's going to ask us, and lead us in deepening our understanding of provision, our perspective on God, what we think provision is. And by provision, I mean what we need to live, what we need to survive. And in doing so, he's, he will lead us into this place of understanding and living in the perfect peace that comes from knowing God. So let's jump into it. Matthew 6 We're going to play in verses 5 through 8. That's where we're going to spend a lot of time. This is what Jesus says. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father in secret, who is unseen." Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard by their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So to take a step back. Jesus is actually putting up two examples. One, the hypocrite, and the other, the pagan. And he uses this word hypocrite. Now, in our language, in the English language, hypocrite means basically someone who says something and does the other thing, which is true, and if you have kids, I hear that like a lot. Oh yeah, if you're a dad, <laughs> you fall into the <laughs> hypocritical things. You Dad, you said that, you were going to, yeah, I know. I... So we know what that means, but Jesus is using it in a different way, uh, according to the Biblical definition of the word. The word hypocrite is basically actor. And it means one who outwardly plays the part of a religious person to perfection. But is inwardly alien to the spirit of true religion. This hypocrite is a pretender. The great actor. And I wonder what he's after. Jesus says, he stands at the street corners, he prays, he puts on the religious show to be admired, to be seen as the good guy or good girl who has it all together. But what is their perspective on God? Years ago, when my kids were younger, uh, living in another country, they were going to a little elementary school that was a part of a larger school. So it was kind of this little um, separate school that was trying to make it start, uh, and it was housed in a smaller school, and it was in our city. And our kids would go to school there, we would go and pick them up, and one day, I was listening to some of their conversation, they were talking about the chart. And I was like, what are you guys talking, what is the chart? And my kids were like, oh, it's the star chart. And I asked a little further, and I found out that this star chart is made with the intention from the administration that the kids would actually be help them like be a better student, grow, and uh, get rewarded for being a good student by going to the zoo at the end of the month. So what they had done is created this chart. All the students' names were on it in columns for their classes and days. And if you did well, if you turned your homework in and were a good student, you'd get a star, and you can collect stars. And the, 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 when you had enough stars, at the end of the month, you get to go to the zoo. And I began to hear this, and I thought, ooh, this isn't going well. What happens to the kids that don't get the stars? Well, if you misbehave or if you didn't turn your homework in or whatever, you could not get a star or you could lose a star. Well, you could see where this is going, right? The kids that were more Type A and more academically wired and thought, "Oh yeah, I get the game. I know how to play this game," they actually collected the stars, right? They were their chart for all to see was pretty full of stars. But what are the kids that were a little bit fidgety, that a harder time to- had a harder time paying attention? They were shamed. Because you couldn't go to the trip, but you didn't get to stay home either. You had to go to a school and sit in the classroom. while all your other friends that had the stars went to the zoo. This is the motivation. The game was worthy of being played. And if you could play it well, you could win the acceptance. But the, the leftover was shame. And here's a picture of the pretender, of his perspective. He's after the show because he thinks God is out there taking score. But he's not really in tune with the heart of God. Or is he interested? God is at a distance. So the pretender's perspective of God is he's far away. Jesus mentions this in Matthew 15 when he's actually talking to some of these people that are pretending. He says this. You hypocrites, you pretenders. The prophet Isaiah was right when when he prophesied about you. He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Here is the pretender. The picture of God that he has is God is a distant deity, and so he just plays the game. It's far What about the pagan? Verses 7 and 8. The pagan is babbling, trying to get God or the God's attention. I really think, if we think about the pagan in this term, is many of my friends, it's like many of my friends that are non-religious, spiritually interested, and desperately seeking to try anything to connect Spiritually, tarot cards, palm readers, different religion, desperately trying to get the attention of God, to find that sense of happiness and fulfillment. But the result of that chasing around is just exhaustion, spiritual despair. See, the pagan's perspective is that God is a power to appease. What do I need to do to appease this distant God? Jesus, like my friend Yerka, is saying, wait. Don't be like that. Don't see God this way. Let me change your perspective of God. First of all, you look in that, the passage It says that that your father who sees you, he sees what's done in secret. Jesus is saying the father is not absent. Matter of fact, the father, this word sees, means he's paying attention. The father sees you, he's paying attention. God is not distant, he's not far off, but he's concerned about you. He's concerned about your anxiety about your cares. There's another part in Scripture that says, Cast your cares upon Him because He cares for you. God is present, Jesus says. He sees you. But the other thing you notice in this small little passage is that the word Father shows up several times. And Father is the main reference, the most favorite reference that Jesus used to call God, especially in the Gospel of John. God God is our Father. He's intimately involved and cares about what is happening. Jesus knows that. And from the psalmist's perspective, Psalm 103, he states, or it states, that as far as the high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. God is a present, compassionate father. John Calvin put it this way, Until people feel that they owe everything to God, that they are protected by his fatherly care, And that he is the author of all their blessings, so that nothing should be sought apart from him. They will never submit to him voluntarily. Indeed, unless they put their complete happiness in his hands, they will never truly have their lives under his control. I would say his loving control. See, in the culture of the kingdom of God, we need to shift, Jesus is saying, our perspective Of a God who is distant, a distant deity to a God who intimately knows us, a Father who is involved. What is your perspective this morning? What has it been? What about the word provision? What does Jesus have to say about that? What we really need to survive? Provision. Uh, Long ago, many years ago, when I was in college, I went to college in Denver, Colorado, I had a great job with my friends. And the job was that we got to sell merchandise of the shows, the concerts that were coming to town. So Denver's kind of a big town. There were some pretty cool national acts that were coming through. So we got to see, like, we got to sell the merch in the hallways, and then when the show was going on and no one was at the, our table, we'd sneak into the stadium and take a peek and kind of watch the show a little bit. So it was it was an awesome job. It's like all these free concerts, and concerts I would never go to. Now, one of the concerts I, what I remember that struck the most, it was surprising to me, because I'm not, I'm not, honestly, some of you guys might be a, a country music fans. How many country music fans in the house? Okay, see? So I'm, I apologize, because it's not, it's not my thing. Don't be offended. But one of the guys, one of the guys that I saw, which is why it was a surprising to me, was Garth Brooks. Any Garth Brooks fans? Okay, yeah. What was shocking to me is he is an amazing performer. And it just kind of stuck. And I'm like, wow, this guy is amazing even though I'm not a big fan of the music. But one of the songs he played was that song called Unanswered Prayer. Now, I know some of you guys are shaking your head. You're going to start, you know, crying out this song, you know, belting it out. Please don't do that. Just refrain. Maybe, you know, after we're done, you can start singing that. But basically, it's a song where he says, I had no idea what I was praying for. I was praying for this girl that I had a crush on, but now that I have wi- my wife, and I look back on that time, I'm so glad that God doesn't answer all our prayers, unanswered prayers. And it's an expression of, of it, it, which, which I thought was quite brilliant, in one sense, is like we don't know what we want. We really don't know what's best. What we think provision is, and we run after, isn't always the best thing, right? So consider the pretender and the pagan. The pretender, what he's after is the show, the thrill of of people watching and seeing him and say, he's got it together. Wow, he's a good guy. He even goes to church. That's, what he, that's the ultimate provision for this pretender. But the pagan, what are they after? Just trying to get the, neat, the things of this world, the happiness, the inner peace, whatever it is that they can run after to get God's attention that they could get in order to get by. Both things are concerning to Jesus. Jesus. I don't think he's saying this in a condemning way, but I can hear his compassion. They're going the wrong way. So like my friend Yerka, Jesus, as he's talking to those of us that want to live in the kingdom of God, says, stop. That's not the way. Because what he knows is what author, American author, David Foster Wallace, which I don't believe, I don't know if he was a Christian, I'm not sure about that. But he made a comment that running after those things is something we all do as human beings, and it's called worship. It doesn't matter if you're an atheist, you're a non-religious person, secularist, or a churchgoer. Everyone, if you're human, worships. And what we worship, what we run after, if it's not true provision, Will destroy us. This is what he says. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap into real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when the time and age start showing, You will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid. A fraud. Always on the verge of being found out. Empty provision. Jesus says, stop. He says, go into your room, close the door, and seek your Father who sees you in secret and what is seen in secret. He will reward you. What's the reward? What's the provision? That room that we see in Scripture, the word room, is not a closet like we think of in our house, some secret closet, but actually can be translated as storeroom or the place where you keep your treasure, the most valuable things, true provision. And what is it? It's in secret. It's in connection with the Father, the one that loves you and knows you. It's the place where we actually bring our anxieties and concerns And our confusion and clarity enters as we begin to focus our attention on our Father. Peace. The reward is peace. And communion with the Father. Isaiah 26 says it this way. You, the Lord, will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast Because they trust in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal. He is the reward. So Jesus has just given us some cultural immersion experience, a lesson, where he's Attacking or leading us to see that our perspectives need to be shifted shifted from seeing a God as distant, a distant <laughs> deity, to a father that's intimately involved and sees us and revealing a deeper understanding of provision. Don't run after these things, but true provision comes from the hand of the Father in communion with him where clarity and peace exists. For he is our peace. So now we're ready to learn the language of the kingdom. The Lord's prayer. Now we're not going to pick apart the prayer. We're not going to break it down. There's so many jewels and gems in there, but All I want to do in this last moment is I'm going to have the worship crew come up. And as they come up, just to take an observation of what's happening in this prayer. Jesus says the the language of the kingdom is, Our Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your kingdom come, your name, your will be done. Remember the core value of the kingdom of God. It's basically praying, O Lord, our Father, may we love you with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then when you move into the second part of this little poem and prayer, give us today our daily bread. Forgive us, Our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. Oh Lord, that we would love you with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, so that we would love like Jesus or like our Father has loved us and forgiven us through Jesus Christ. That we actually become. Men and women marked inside and out by the expression of the kingdom of God, which is love, forgiveness, seeing people as they are, extending the grace of God that we've received to others. This is the language of the kingdom. And you know what happens when we pray this? Not as a res- like a, just a prayer that we read over by memory, but when it becomes our own language, that prayer is shaping us by the Holy Spirit to actually live the, of the values of the kingdom in our families, with our co-workers, to our enemies, to those who hurt us in our schools. This is the beauty of the prayer of the kingdom that God has given us. So, we're going to take a moment to let that settle in, to shift our hearts, our perspectives, to find what really true provision is and to begin to live and speak the peace that comes in in Christ Jesus. So, let's worship together by saying and praying and singing the prayer that Jesus gave us.